Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Rhonda Freeman. Dr. Freeman is a clinical neuropsychologist. She works with patients diagnosed with neurological conditions and focuses much of her work on helping people who are involved in toxic or abusive relationships. She's also the founder of Neuro Instincts and writes for Psychology Today and The Huffington Post, among others. Dr. Freeman, it's great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Oh, you're welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, no, we already did some talking before we got started, and I'm really interested in what we explore today. We're going to talk about sociopathy and malignant narcissism, two topics that we've already touched on a bit during the podcast, but it'll be great to get your perspective on them as kind of a true expert in these subjects. So you could have explored a lot of material, but you chose this. So why is that? Yeah, it actually is for personal reasons. My focus of my career was on dementia. I've always been very interested in dementia. So when I went to do my fellowship after the PhD, I focused completely on dementia. And then I eventually went into research and I do clinical and research now. But during that time period, I fell in love with someone. And that someone had very strong psychopathic traits. And I went through, now I see the typical relationship patterns that many survivors go through in those relationships. And so once I, I healed, I was just going to go right back into solely focusing on dementia. But that relationship left such an impact on me and I needed to heal from actually being in love that never happened before. So I thought, my goodness, how about everybody else who don't have a PhD, who don't understand this topic and they're struggling? And so I had to reach back and try to help them understand what it is that we all went through in these relationships. So Rhonda, we're going to talk about romantic relationships and also generalize out into family systems broadly and workplace situations and even neighbors with regard to these topics. Before we go there, I wondered if you could just distinguish among, even though they overlap, sociopathy, narcissism, and psychopathy. Yeah. I personally view it as a spectrum and a lot of people do, but I do know that some psychologists and psychiatrists do not view them in that way. But my take is that narcissistic personality disorder has a range and it starts off with your typical MPD. So narcissistic personality disorder that has all its you know set of, of conditions. However, when we go further down that spectrum, narcissistic personality disorder can eventually blend into antisocial personality disorder. So there are some people who have at that overlap malignant narcissism, which is kind of a blend of narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. So these people are not only all that narcissistic personality disorder is, they are very aggressive and kind and some of the traits that we see with the antisocial group. And then within the antisocial group alone, at the very end, you have psychopaths. And those are individuals with great deal of callousness, cunning behavior, exploitive. They can have almost no relationships that are not transactional. They, you know, use people as things and so forth. So I look at it as that spectrum. Even on that spectrum that I'm leaving off is histrionic, because I honestly think it begins with histrionic, then it goes narcissistic, then it goes antisocial. Yeah, that's right. And then when we speak also within a clinical framework of so-called personality disorders, we're really talking about something that's quite extreme that yeah. impairs social or, or occupational functioning and or leads to significant distress, thus the disorder aspect. And then 
as I continue to say things you know, but I'm just going to say them for other listeners. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The personality disorder aspect of it means that it's pervasive and longstanding and across many different situations and times. And so thus the so-called personality disorder. And as you use that term and, and I as well, people who are licensed, we mean it in a fairly significant way. So it's kind of like in a more medical model. If we were to say, oh, this person has the measles, it's the real measles. So here, when we're talking about a real personality disorder, it's, it's the real deal. And a lot of what we'll be talking about here, as Forrest well knows, is more dialed down versions of this, as well as the more extreme version. The last thing I want to just kind of nail with you briefly before we go on is, could you give us, you know, one or two or three sentences on Someone who's highly narcissistic, yet not sociopathic, or someone who's very sociopathic, yet not so narcissistic, and draw the distinctions a little bit. I know they overlap, but kind of the feel of the distinction. And then kind of highlight again what you said about a malignant narcissist, someone who is at the intersection of those two things. The person who is primarily narcissistic, hence not psychopathic or antisocial, that individual, they, they can have many, many presentations. Some can be dramatic, some can be very quiet and edgy and nervous, but they tend to have a very fragile sense of self. They are always protecting that false self. So they need people to see them in a certain way, typically a positive way, and it bothers them tremendously if they're not seen in that way. And hence, they'll do things like try to control the relationship in order to get that certain feedback to themselves because they have such a fragile sense of self. So the self-identity is not very strong. They tend to be very arrogant. They don't have to be overtly arrogant. Some are overtly arrogant and let them know they're the best of the best. They're wonderful, but some will never say a word like that at all. But they have that belief that they're the best of the best. And so it might seem strange that someone can be so arrogant, but yet so fragile. But that's that strange sort of mixture we see with the narcissistic personality sort of person. So then going towards the other end, when you have a psychopath, That person doesn't need quite as much, if maybe any feedback from you, that they're amazing. They are more into the power and control of you and that you respect their status, that you respect that power that they have and don't cross that line. Because when you do cross that line, you may not even realize you're doing so. You're just maybe making a joke or saying something that was cute or funny. They will find that very disrespectful because they felt their power was challenged and that you made them look bad. So the psychopath is a bit more cold significantly actually more cold, more callous, exploitive, more transactional. And their need for people is not as dependent as the narcissist would be. Great. Super good. Yeah, I think that was a really wonderful summary of a lot of the topics that we've been exploring in the last 15, 20 episodes or so of podcasts that we've been doing here. Yeah. So to kind of narrow in on malignant narcissism, which is Mm. what you experienced personally... Obviously, you're a very educated person, you're a very intelligent person, and you live in the field of looking at brains and looking at the way that people think and really kind of evaluating that. And yet, this person was able to kind of worm their way into your life, which suggests that there might be very obvious demonstrations of sociopathic tendencies that any person could look at and go, wow, that's something I don't want to touch. But then there are these kind of more subtle demonstrations of these things that maybe aren't initially obvious, or maybe somebody simply comes across as extremely charming. Whereas when underneath all of that, there's truly this malignant narcissistic tendency. So 
whether to speak to your own experience or other people who have spoken to you about these topics or whatever it might be, what are maybe some of the more subtle signs that a person might have these tendencies that aren't necessarily that they're going around kicking puppies or whatnot? Right, exactly. You know, first you nailed one of the main ones, which is the charm. Mm. That was one of the ones that got me. I didn't think psychopath because back then, you know, it was a long time ago. I wasn't that, this wasn't my area of expertise at all. So I thought the psychopath was someone who's always angry, always cold, flat, and callous. So with that little uh, image in my mind about them, when this guy was warm, and funny and charming. And he just knew what to say all the time. I thought, oh, well, it's just, you know, great guy. Never thought psychopath until the relationship progressed, you know, significantly. And then I saw it. So, you know, when you do have someone who's incredibly charming, don't dismiss that that person is a safe person. Just kind of keep in mind. I do remember saying to myself, he's a little bit too nice. Mm. And that sent off a red flag with me. I thought, I don't understand why he's this nice or why he like me so much. And, and it wasn't an insecurity kind of thing on my part. I have a realistic, you know, appraisal of myself. And I thought, my goodness, you know, I'm not that incredible that this person after date number two tells me I'm the most amazing person that they've ever met. That's nobody says that. That's strange. You don't know me. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. I can be a horrible person. You don't know me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that was the other thing that I, you know, I, I realized he was moving too fast how quickly he wanted to, hey, you know, let's go out again, let's go out again, and you're so great. I felt his addiction to me. And there's been several studies that show that people with this disorder, they have a very hyper-responsive reward system. And the reward system is a system of our brain, for those who are listening. The reward system is neural pathways that make us attracted to other people. It's associated with lust, it's associated with attraction, excitement, warranting, yearning, all that good stuff that you need when you're falling for somebody new and when you're attracted to someone. Well, it seems that their brain has a hyperactive one. So that's why many of us survivors see this same pattern of rapid moving, like second date, they want to marry you or something like that. I think within a month, he asked me to marry him. And I thought he was joking. I had no idea he was actually serious. You know, So I thought it was a joke. Because the behavior is so odd. So charm, the rapid pace of the the relationship is another red flag. And for those who think that because the person is intelligent, that doesn't then they can possibly be a psychopath or, or a narcissist or something. A person's personality is not managed by the exact same neuropathways that cognition is managed. And hence, someone who is very dangerous very pathological, can also be incredibly successful mm-hmm. in their career. Mm-hmm. And, and that was something that kind of turned my red flag you know, detectors off. And I thought, this guy's really successful. He, he's done so well. He's achieved so much. Okay, you know, he's probably normal. He was getting a lot of check marks in the normal category when in fact, those two can exist quite frequently. This is a tricky question that said, and, and you're going to help us navigate through it, what kept you involved through the warning signals that began flashing more and more brightly for you? Mm-hmm. And more generally, what are some of the things you've seen that tend to keep people in these kind of situations or keep people exposed to the impacts of these sorts of people, even outside of the frame of romantic relationships, but in workplace settings or different kinds? And I'll just begin by saying, I've never been in this kind of relationship myself with anyone, but I have been in what I would call at least half a cult and maybe even close to it. And I've reflected some on some of the overlaps and similarities between what keeps people in cults 
and what keeps people in relationships with abusive people. And one of the things that struck me, at least about my own background in that cult or half a cult, was that what kept me in and what I see often keeps people in these situations is the best in them. Yeah. Their loyalty, their good heart, they're willing to see the whole big picture again and again and again and contextualize the flashing red lights in that larger sea of, let's say, green. Their capacity to love, their willingness to take personal responsibility, to look over here at their own part in the matter, even if it's clear the other person has a part, et cetera, et cetera. So with that kind of introduction and acknowledging clearly we don't want to move into any form of quote-unquote victim blaming here. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That said, what can people be aware of inside themselves and maybe speaking from your own experience that they could understand or could be leading them to stay in a situation or stay exposed in a situation past the point that's really good for them? You know, many of the things that you mentioned are some of the things that also kept me as well, seeing the good in him. And people with this disorder are very capable of being very good for months, actually. So you only see the good in them with little subtle red flags here and there. But the good is so overwhelming that you think, well, everybody kind of has some quirks. So you dismiss it. By the time they show mostly bad and then truly who they are, then you're kind of bonded and connected. For me, I was bonded and connected. And when I bond to someone, it's really hard to, to disconnect for one. And for two, he played on my empathy so much. And that is my Achilles heel. One of the best things about you right there. <laughs> but, but in the hands of a psychopath or, or malignant narcissist, it is my Achilles heel. Yeah. And it was, he, he figured that out. So I'm extremely compassionate and I have high empathy. So when those neural pathways get activated for me, I'm putty in your hand, unfortunately. And he would play on my empathy. He would play victim. And then he, I'm also one that takes a great deal of responsibility when something goes wrong because I'm ready to solve it. I'm ready to fix it and figure it out. So he let me know, well, we're in a situation because had you not said this, then I wouldn't have not, not done that. And so I thought, oh gosh, wow, he's pretty right about that. Let me be careful with that next time. So I was taking on so much responsibility. Had I figured out at that point, I was dealing with somebody on the, on the spectrum that's their MO. That's what they do. They blame others. And so others have to figure out, you know, how to <laughs> how to figure, you know, get out of the situation. So I stayed because I was trauma bonded to him. I stayed because I was in love at that point. And then it was a strange combination. I loved him, I didn't like him. And then it was I didn't like him and I was scared of him. So it was a, just it was it was bizarre. My brain was just I was exhausted too. I was so exhausted. And my empathy was getting manipulated. I was getting the gaslighting scenarios happening here and there. I would see things and mention it. No, that didn't happen. He was just really driving me insane. So you used a term just there a second ago. You said trauma bond. And one of the most interesting blog posts of yours that I read on your website had to do with this topic of trauma bonding and kind of what to do about it. So could you please kind of describe that term and how you managed to exit that cycle with him? Yeah, that term, I think it, it came from Drs. Dutton and Paint back, I think, in 1980, 1981, very, very long time ago, like over 30 something years ago. And they described relationships and abuse, and that was their area of expertise. And they saw that people who would stay in these relationships, terrible relationships, some of them were even getting physically and emotionally abused and financially abused, and they would stay. And what they found is that all the partners they were staying with, there was a power differential between them. So one person was in charge of the relationship, the abuser, and the other one was, was kind of in this, this submissive sort of 
even if they were trying to fight, they were, they were, they were still below this power person. And so one person was powerful, but then the one who was powerful and abusive could sometimes be so nice. And but then they were sometimes so bad and so nice and so bad. And so when the person saw the nice glimpses of the old behaviors, they would get more and more and more connected. Now back then they didn't do, you know, brain studies. And I don't even know if they've done any yet, but I tried to overlay what's going on neurologically with that. So it's my own theory is not like any kind of sort of you know, research topic yet with respect to what lies behind the trauma bond. But I think we have a great deal of neurochemistry going on there. The neurochemistry of love. I think there's dopamine, there's oxytocin, there is endogenous opioids. And let me give like a just a little quick explanation. So for example, oxytocin is, an, is a neuropeptide. It's associated with us feeling connected with people. And when we're flooded with oxytocin, it's the best feeling. You feel comfortable, calm, relaxed, and just connected to whoever you're with. It could be your dog that you're feeling you're with or your, or your husband. And then there's endogenous opioids that's associated with pleasure and with pain. So for example, let's say that your child has gone away to college. That, that actual, that chemistry is going to ramp up because you're hurting because you miss them so much. Then you're going to have corticotropin releasing factor. That's a part of our stress system. And that's associated with the feeling of withdrawal. So when we leave this relationship, we have almost this like drug addicted withdrawal stage you have to go through. And many of us survivors, this is why we go back again and again and again, because that withdrawal stage is so painful that you actually want that person back just to get relief. Even though you know you don't like them, they're not kind to you, they're going to do the behaviors again. Logically, you understand. But that chemistry will make having them back, you'll get relief by having them back. And then, of course, there's dopamine. Dopamine is going to drive that feeling of craving. It's going to make you do strange things like, I don't know, go to the Instagram page and look at who they are <laughs> you know, liking, what they're doing, those kinds of things. And so for the survivors and people, you know, people like me, I was doing all those things. I'm like internet spying on him. Like, what's he doing? Even though I don't even like this guy. He treated me terribly. I was trauma bonded, addicted. And so, yeah, it was a hard place to be. So... You're describing basically a cycle where something bad happens to a person, but there is also an intense bonding based on emotional connection with them as well. Yeah. So you, as you were describing earlier, which I think you said beautifully, you loved him, but you didn't like him. Yeah. These bad things were happening to you, but there was still a deep emotional connection there. Then you exited that situation, but because of chemical factors and also social factors, probably personal factors, you still felt this kind of sense of connection to this person who had done relatively horrible things to you. Yes. For somebody who might be going through that process, as who knows, somebody listening to this right now might be, what were some of the ways that you were able to exit that cycle and what kind of advice would you give them? Mm-hmm. Uh, my relationship was broken up by him. That's how deep in the cycle I was. I will share with others. So for those who are listening and feel guilty that they're still there, don't because I was there too. And so the only reason the relationship broke up was because he left by cheating. So I want to put that out there. But once he left, I was going through that cycle pretty intensely. I was very, very much within withdrawal. And I actually had to say to myself, to make a detachment. And I realized that my reward system was way too activated. So I had to put rules on myself. I had to stop with the computer. I said, no, no, no more computer with respect to looking up him. I had actual rules like a 
like a to-do list, <laughs> you know, in my phone of, of things I will not allow myself to do. Absolutely unacceptable. Because when I had those moments mm. of clarity, when my prefrontal cortex seemed to be a little bit for a few seconds back online, <laughs> that's the part of the brain that handles your logic or reasoning. It takes a back seat, by the way, in these situations. But when it was back online, it helped me to make my little list of no, you know, things not to do. So that really helped me put some boundaries on me. Mm-hmm. And it also, I made up scenarios of what if he called me again? What would I do? Like, would I be so happy to get relief, relief of our withdrawal that I take him back? I made rules about that. I interacted with positive people. I had a few tough love friends, for sure, who would say, you know, oh my God, enough of this, get over it. I, I did not find those friends helpful. They only activated my stress system more. That's really interesting, yeah. So tough love for me was not a good approach because... You know, I'm really compassionate and empathic, and that just hurt me more. So I went towards the friends who really didn't talk about it. They were just more like, you know, huggers and come around. We like, you know, like sit on the couch, cuddle, and watch TV, and they make me laugh, you know, kind of thing. Those scenarios felt so good. And it's so healing for the brain because one of the things we know from neuroscience is that oxytocin has a direct impact upon the stress system of the brain. And it actually has an impact upon the amygdala. And so it can be very, very, very calming. This is a reason that connecting with other people will be so important. And then the last thing that's really, really good is is self-compassion. And that allows you to kind of activate your own self-nurturing. But I will say, and people who are going through this now will probably know that it's hard to have self-compassion right out of these relationships because the abuser likely told you what a horrible piece of trash you are, how terrible you are, and that all this was your fault. And they do a number for however many years they're with you or months that they're with you, letting you know how worthless you are. And so it's tough to have self-compassion during that time, but just know it's so important to try to get there. Yeah, I think that those are wonderful points. And I I really just want to highlight something that you said there, which I actually had never really thought about, but I think it's a really interesting um, way to approach it, which is that when you exit that relationship, you're getting even if they're really twisted, you're getting psychoemotional supplies from another person. Yeah. And particularly, you're getting kind of positive emotional supplies from them. Yeah. Even if they're telling you that you're the horrible person on the one hand, they've also got moments with you where they're, as you're saying, very, in very snake-like fashion, demonstrating love and care and respect and whatever it might be. So immediately upon exiting that relationship, there is an instinct, I think, from the people around that person, that support system, to sometimes go in that kind of tough love approach that you were describing, just kind of saying, can't you see how problematic this is? I mean, when you're on the outside of that, it's often quite obvious. But really what sort of served you the most was other people stepping in to that role of emotional support and love and care and affection that had been vacated in your life by the uh, the vacuum that this person left behind when they left. Yeah, And I just think that that's a really, I, I don't have any kind of additional commentary on that. I just think that that's a really interesting note and a really interesting point to make here that when we're supporting somebody who's going through that kind of experience, often what's most helpful is probably dropping into that role, fulfilling that psycho-emotional support that they feel that they're lacking now. Yeah, I agree. For me, that helped not talking about it, but just being there. Mm. How I'm hearing this sort of systematically is under four headings. So heading number one is recognizing that you're in a pathological relationship. Yes. To use the language you're familiar with, I'm sure from family system psychology, you're in a sick system and it's not you that's sick. It's the system that's sick. Mm. There's something Mm -hmm. wrong over there. 
Second, helping yourself get out of it. What can a person draw upon inside themselves and also enlisting resources outside themselves, including friends to sit on the couch with them and make them laugh, to get out? Yes. Third, how can a person sort of in the aftermath heal and grow from the experience? whatever we call it, post-traumatic growth, or whether we call it, you know, just lessons learned, takeaways, healing, what can a person do there? So maybe we can talk more about that part. And then the last of the four headings is what do we do when we're in situations that aren't, let's say a romantic relationship, but Mm -hmm. you're stuck with a person. Let's say this is your ex and you've got to raise kids together for the next 10 years and your Mm -hmm. ex has expensive lawyers. Or this is your boss or coworker, and for some reason, you just really can't, or it would be a big, big deal to leave that job. Or this is someone in your family system. This is your sister-in-law or your brother-in-law. What do you do then? Okay, good. So that's kind of my organizing framework. We've worked through the first two for sure. And I wonder now if we could talk more about kind of once you've exited, how you can help yourself heal. And then also more generally, if you could talk about what to do in situations where you're kind of stuck, right? And healing, that part for me, it was focusing on how the brain works. You know, Rick, the brain's not like a, the more you talk and get it out, then it's like a pour it out system. It's an activation, deactivation system. So, because I have many survivors writing me and saying, you know, I've been talking about this for a couple of years now and I thought I got it all out and why am I still stuck? And, and that's because that's not how the brain works. It's not, it doesn't operate like that. We don't have like a little bucket of, of trauma. You empty that trauma. It's more about working with someone that will help activate the brain in certain ways that helps process those memories out and, and, and help other parts of the brain do better particularly, for example, the, the prefrontal cortex. And so for me, it was doing various brain-related activities that would activate my prefrontal cortex. I would do that on my own, as I talked about our last talk, through, through different kind of brain trainings that I love to do, like reasoning types of things, reasoning strategy type games, games where I have to you know, not only figure things out, but sequence things. It's just things that activate the prefrontal cortex. And those are really helpful for me. And then from, from my emotional system, that was where you know, the people, the other people were really helpful. Even my dog was helpful, you know, just being with, with him. And then the other strategies I would use would be doing things like movement, going on walks, being outside was really, really important. So I kind of made my backyard like a little like mini like oasis for myself, really, really nurturing, lots of greenery, all the trees. I'd actually appreciate my trees. You know, I live in Florida, so we have tons of trees. <laughs> and those things just really help calm me down. I would use the combination of aromatherapy with the thought of regarding how the different smells impacted the brain. Some are very stimulating, some are very calming. So the whole way I tried to keep a brain, you know, uh, approach when I was healing myself. And a little bit of the strategies from mindfulness with respect to trying to keep myself present and what am I thinking now, what am I feeling now kind of approaches. And so for, for healing, that is what worked for me. I tried a therapist initially, but she was one of the get it out kind of people, you know, let's talk about it. And I didn't see, I mean, I was going through, you know, it was trauma for me. So talking about that trauma mm. only made me walk out that door feeling... 
more activated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like why did I have to talk about what he did that day? You know, I don't see why that how that helped me. I felt terrible for two days crying, and then okay, I got back together, and then I got myself back together rather. And then the next week, we go back and she do the same thing with me. I thought, okay, yeah, this doesn't work. So when it comes to healing, I do think that if even if you don't have you meaning audience don't have the background in the brain, that's okay. But just kind of pay attention to how certain treatment interventions make you feel. Yeah. I think that's great. And one of the things I just want to underline that I found so interesting is your emphasis on kind of working the muscle and strengthening the muscle of reasoning and, as you know, the executive functions and the will, which is really interesting to think about that the lack of application of those, if you will, again, not blaming the victim, but simply they get flooded and overwhelmed by this super powerful force. And maybe I'll just add one more thing here from my own background in a half a cult that really blew my mind that might also be relevant here is as myself, as Forrest knows, I'm a very independent, autonomous, stubborn, determined, don't mess with me kind of person, partly related to my loving, but somewhat controlling parents. Okay. (laughs) I got seduced, and I'm going to use deliberately that word, into a non-romantic erotic situation. I got seduced. I got talked into it for various reasons. And the shocker for me was as a number one, stubborn, independent individual, number two, privileged by virtue of race, gender, class, and all the rest of that. You know, I had a lot of stuff going for me. I was still completely bamboozled. I was affected. I was influenced. I was sucked in. And I think it's really helpful, even if it's humbling, but it's honest to recognize our vulnerability as profoundly social mammals, particularly those of us who are, as you say, more empathic and compassionate by nature. We're so easily influenced and affected and drawn in. And I think a key takeaway from that is to really appreciate the power of social conformity, of social acceptance longings, of our openness to being manipulated and and influenced by other people, including third parties on the sidelines who for various reasons say, oh, you know, it's just a bad day for that person or, oh, well, but he's so good looking or I have no idea whatever they might say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, just appreciating how powerful these influences are, I think is really, really helpful for people. I agree. I think it's so helpful that you're being so honest with respect to your experience because someone would instantly, you know, assume, no, that would never happen to Rick or that would never happen to Rhonda. And then they feel so much shame that it happened to them, yeah, you know, no. and, and that's one of the big ones with this population, victim population is the shame that you walk away feeling like, oh, I, I allowed this to happen, you know? And so I just want people to be aware that, you know, you may have to find yourself working through not only all the pain, but the shame that you'll, you'll feel after this. Yeah, speaking to that for a moment, we had a great conversation a couple months ago with Chris Germer around using self-compassion practices to work with feelings of shame internally. Uh, he's a real expert in that territory. So if that's something that's meaningful for you, that episode might be useful if you happen to be listening to this. And I also just want to highlight again, one other thing that you said, doctor, a little bit earlier was how that specific therapeutic methodology that you were dropped into was not functional for you. And I think it's really important to kind of highlight that, that there are many, many different approaches to any kind of therapeutic process. One of them is kind of what you're describing of a sort of traditional talk therapy approach. 
But there are many, many different ways that somebody can enter into that kind of a therapeutic relationship. And so much of the value in it comes from finding what really works for you. So as Rick was saying earlier, I think that it's great that you were dropped into a situation, you tried to do the kind of quote unquote conventional thing, the conventional talk therapy solution. You went, okay, this isn't for me for whatever reason, and you found alternatives. So you stayed motivated around your healing process. And I think that, yeah, yeah. For a lot of people though, particularly when you're in the immediate aftermath of that kind of traumatic experience, it's easy to not be that motivated around your own healing, around to get, to run into the roadblock, the thing that doesn't work, and then to just go, well, I'm just kind of broken here. And clearly this thing didn't work for me, so I'm just screwed and here we are. Mm-hmm. And maintaining that kind of active participation in your own process mm-hmm. is one of the things that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, really seems like it enabled you to sort of move through it. Yeah, yeah, it did. It really did. Because I, I know that psychology is so vast. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll find the way. Yeah. And, and the ridiculous thing was, it's actually from my own field. <laughs> Not even <laughs> to my own field first. So that I'll never understand. So don't ask me to explain that. Because <laughs> I, I ran straight to a different, you know, version of psychology. And then I realized it was neuropsych that was going to help me. For me, that worked. For others, other things may work. But for me, neuropsych was it. So two cases. So one of the hallmarks, as you know, of a personality disorder is a basically flat or really, really shallow learning curve. They don't learn, right? And so case one is what if you're with someone, not necessarily romantically, could be your neighbor, your coworker, your brother-in-law, who is, let's say, mildly narcissistic and or mildly sociopathic. And I'm going to use that term just in the sense of a, a kind of disregard for the impact of others and a fairly primitive moral reasoning that's quite concrete and has to do with direct, as you put it earlier, transactional impact on them. What can I get away with? So let's suppose you're dealing with someone who is mildly narcissistic or sociopathic, and yet they have a learning curve, particularly if you, know, you bring it to them in a, in a clear and strong way. So that's case one. Case two, what if you're stuck with someone who is that classic malignant narcissist You just presume zero learning curve, once a snake, twice a snake, going to be a snake. And yet you might have options in your workplace environment or your larger extended family or your neighborhood to bound, shrink, you know, your relationship with that person, let's say, including the ways that they kind of get into your head. So I wonder if you could speak to those two topics. Yeah, those are tough because the responsibility kind of falls on you to understand how to interact with that person because they are not going to change and they have such, so many limitations. In the second case. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's, yeah, that's what the second case, the one where there actually is pathology and that person's so hypersensitive, you know, their ego's fragile, you have to walk on the eggshells around them. You will have to plan out how you speak to them. And you also have to be educated in this area of what their limitations are, because it's going to be hard to interact with them. You're going to think, oh, I can interact just like I would with anyone else. That's not going to work. You will have to be willing to put in some extra work in interacting with this person. And that is a person who you're saying you're not in a romantic relationship with anymore, but you have to some, for some reason interact with them. Like maybe they're your ex and you have a child together or something. Okay. All right. So then you're not like in danger. Yeah, you have to be very business-like in how you interact with them. Do not give too much. Do not give too much information. Do not um, 
be emotional, unfortunately, with them, you have to protect your emotional system. And no, I'm about to have an interaction with this person. I cannot let the most vulnerable parts of me be exposed. I can't walk in their belly up and then just have a conversation as I would if this was, you know, John down the street who's a normal guy. This is this guy has a disorder. You have to kind of not accommodate in, in a weak way, but accommodate to their deficits because you know, and many survivors hate me to say this, but they hate when I say they have a disorder and it's an illness. And they can say, well, you're just letting them off the hook. But the reality is it is a disorder. And you have to accommodate to how they function and kind of go down to their level and give them just a little bit of the necessary interactions, no emotional interactions, and navigate very purposefully mm. when you interact mm-hmm. with them. Whereas, you know, I don't have to do it when I talk to you. I can just talk freely. I can make a joke if I want to. If you were that way, I'd have to be careful about a joke because that joke may hurt your fragile ego and then you lash out at me. I can't tell you anything that, you know, hey, Rick, I noticed that you... We're looking at the road when you were driving just now. Can you make sure you pay attention? That could you know, lead you into a rage if you have this disorder. So you have to be so careful with them. And that will fall on you if you're willing to have them in your life and have to have them in your life. Yeah, I just want to build briefly on what you're saying there. I, I th- am thinking here first of the sort of metaphor, really, in the folktale of the night of the Buddha's awakening, in which he was assailed by these forces of evil and delusion represented by Mara. And what he did was simply recognize Mara, I see you. The Buddha also reached down and touched the earth. And thus you see these uh, statues routinely where one hand is upright and the other is reaching down to draw strength from Mother Earth. And there's such a deep teaching in several ways in that regard, including the simple power of recognizing what you're dealing with. Yes. Right. I see you. And Mm -hmm. reminding to yourself, this is what I see. And then second, for me at least, I think of it a little bit like talking with someone on cocaine who's just really buzzed. It's the coke talking, except in this case, it's the sociopathy talking. It's the narcissism talking. It's the profound egocentrism, the personality structure of a ravenously emotionally hungry year-old child that's perfectly normal and appropriate in a one-year-old child and deeply alarming when it's the person you're sleeping next to. But it helps to just know for yourself what you're recognizing and then keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, the first category, yeah. the person who's mildly yeah. narcissistic or mildly self- selfish, self-centered, but there's some trainability there. I, you know, I actually have this in my personal life currently. And a few years ago, I actually, I actually decided I want to put that person out of my life because I just saw the traits of it there. This person does not have full narcissistic personality disorder, but the traits are so much there that I've watched this person destroy various relationships. This person really is not all that respectful when he interacts with me. Very, very, very difficult. And I found myself, you know, kind of reacting to his behavior. And, you know, always his response would be, wow, you're so emotional and just totally dismiss whatever I would say. And I finally decided, you know, this person has a disorder. It's just the same thing I told you. And I have to interact very purposefully. So right now, whenever I speak with this person, I always plan in my head how I'm going to say something. I almost always start off with a compliment. I, I, I do what I call, this is not a real, you know, psych term to interview out there. But it's, it's what I call authoritative kindness because I never want to come at him with weakness because I know that he has dichotomous thinking. 
And so I comment, hey, if you don't mind, or, you know, I don't want to ever come at, you know, I'm so sorry to ask you to do this. You know, I'm always authoritative kind because he doesn't respect if I look weak, you know, so I, I just can't be kind. I have to say, hey, this is what needs to be done. Can you get that done? Thanks, bye. You know, it's kind of like that. Or I give a little bit of a compliment. You know, I really loved how the other day when you did so and so with the, you know, the, 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 the boxes or whatever. I appreciate that. Can you do that with this now? Oh yeah, sure. You know, so I I sort of stroke that that fragile ego. I get what I want, but I don't look weak, and and it's a lot of work. So you only do this kind of thing with somebody who's really important in your life, like your child. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or you know, something like that. Yeah, that makes great sense. And I just want to kind of highlight something you're saying here, which is the importance of having a plan. You've said that a couple of times now, and the first time that you said it it immediately stood out to me because I think that it's so important, right? If you're in a normal interaction with somebody else who's kind of a well-adjusted person, even if they're a little challenging to be around or they're a little touchy or whatever, you can kind of go in there and fly by the seat of your pants. But when you're dealing with somebody who has a pathology, you really need to have your marching orders kind of set up before you go to battle, so to speak. Um, Because they're really, really good at exploiting the little chinks in your armor to kind of continue the metaphor here. So as you're describing using techniques, I loved the phrase authoritative kindness. I'm going to flag that (laughs) up and steal that from you for later because I think it's a great phrase. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) That idea of if you are using self-deprecating or soft kindness as many people, particularly people who've been acculturated in that fashion, do an interaction to kind of preemptively one down yourself to appear non-threatening to somebody else, that works with a normal person. Right. But with a sociopath, that's not going to work because they're not going to respect that, that empathy interaction that you're dropping into by doing that, that little subtle sort of desire to appear non-threatening. So I think it's a wonderful technique. It's one of many great techniques that you've named here, but that uh, that phrase and that <laughs> practice really just jumped out to me and I thought were really great. So I just kind of wanted to put a flag in it. Yeah, you, you'll see that behavior with the many, many malignant narcissists. They actually may say, you know, I don't like her, but I really respect yeah, her because absolutely. she actually mm-hmm. is strong. You know, like they see that as strong because that dichotomous thinking has an always thinking in black, white, rich, or strong, not strong. It's, it's very dichotomous. There's no gray often. So they can't appreciate that at that moment, you're being kind because you want to get, you know, ask them to do something with respect to them. They don't see it that way. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. Yeah, thank you. So then finally, during this episode, we've spoken a lot about reflections on the past, how you've talked about your personal history, things you would have done differently, whatever it might be. So theoretically, if you had the ability to go back in time and speak to yourself as a child, as a young adult, somebody in those kind of developmental stages, Mm -hmm. what is it that you would want to say to that person? You know, what would you want to leave them with? Well, looking back on my life, I don't know, I, I think I had a few people who came in and kind of took advantage. And I don't know, I had those moments where I didn't think that I deserved better. So I think I'd look back and and tell her that people who do that, they're not good people for doing that. And that you'd never want to make anybody feel inferior. And that I've not gone through my life making others inferior to feel good. And to not listen to those people. Because those people have had an impact on me and put me back a few steps that required healing for years, some of them, of not feeling worthy or great. And so... I think, yeah, if I were to go back, it would be just to not listen to people who have absolute like serious pathology 
And I think that's probably one of the reasons that not only, you know, did I do this because of my ex, but also because I've encountered not romantic relationships, but other people through the years that had that style of, of wanting to be harmful to people, be it bosses, be it friends, that I wanted to really make the world aware of people can really be harmful and so harmful that they can change your life. You know, not everybody is, you know, alluded to. Uh, goes to this, you know, okay, this happens and it's post-traumatic growth and then we're just better than before. Well, some people, they actually, they, they, they end up devastated by this and they have a hard time moving forward. Yeah, I think that's a great reflection and a great piece of advice for anyone who happens to be listening to this, who's experiencing some of those feelings and going through some of those experiences. So again, doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really lovely to speak with you. Thank you, Rhonda. Thank you, Boris. Thank you, Rick. I loved it too. Thank you. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rhonda Freeman. We spent most of the episode exploring the toxic impact narcissism can have on our relationships. Although some elements of malignant narcissism may be easily identifiable as red flags, people with problematic narcissistic tendencies can often be quite charming. Dr. Freeman outlined some of the more subtle signs that someone might possess negative narcissistic tendencies, highlighting a lack of consistent empathy as one of the big red flags. We then spent some time talking about the trauma bond that can form between the abused and the abuser, and how it's often very challenging, even on the level of brain chemistry, for victims to feel relieved or just move on from an emotionally abusive relationship. One of the things that really stuck out to me that Dr. Freeman mentioned was how ineffective a tough love approach from friends and family can be for someone healing from these experiences, and how what we can really do to help is actually filling the hole of psycho-emotional support that the relationship used to fill. We closed by talking about some of the ways we can make our relationships with people with narcissistic tendencies more functional. Dr. Freeman highlighted the importance of purposeful interaction, having a clear plan before every interaction, and using authoritative kindness to avoid appearing weak or exploitable. Before we go, I'd like to let you know about Rick's new program, Just One Minute. If you'd like to start making real positive changes to your brain and your life, but you don't have a lot of extra time, then Just One Minute is for you. It features 57 bite-sized practices that give you just one thing to focus on each day to make your life better, such as seeing the good in yourself, finding strength, feeling safer, and taking more breaks. You can watch or listen to them anywhere, and with lifetime access, you can revisit them again and again. For podcast listeners, we're offering a special discount to Just One Minute. If you enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout, it will give you 10% off of the purchase price. I was actually there when Rick was recording this program, and I really have to say, I think that it's one of our best offerings. So if you're interested in learning more about Just One Minute, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying these episodes, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate them and subscribe to them through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.